and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? That is become from wer against wir or something in German. I'm never really sure. Very excited for our guest today. Perhaps he can help. Unfortunately, it's just me today, Richard Litauer. I am your host. So hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. And our guest today is Mike Saunders. Mike is joining us from Munich. He's originally British born. He is the marketing and communications coordinator for the Document Foundation. We're going to get into what the Document Foundation is in a second. Mike is a longtime advocate of open standards, and he also wrote his own operating system at one point, Mike OS. Definitely want to hear about that. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, greetings from Germany. Nice little bit of German you practice there as well. So uh, I mainly fail, but I, I do like to try. Okay, l- let's get right into the really good stuff. Just avoiding everything else. What's MicOS? How did that happen? Yeah, so the most important thing in the podcast, yeah, sustainability <laughs> of, oh, I'm, I've always been a geek playing around with computers. I had a ZX Spectrum back in the day. I don't know if that means much to you guys in America, but you've had the too far back for me, I'm afraid. Yep. Yeah, it's the C64. You had these 8-bit computers and you could learn everything about a computer back then. You could literally learn everything. Every byte in RAM, what it does, the assembly language, the machine code, you could completely understand the whole workings of a computer. So I was a little bit too young to really do much with that. But yeah, about 10 years ago, I started messing around in assembly language and I made a bootloader. Well, I printed a character on the screen, then it turned into a bootloader and it's like the Linus Torvald story, you know, of, oh, I'm just making a hobbyist project. Went a little bit more <laughs> big and professional than mine. That's awesome. Okay, so you're a tinkerer and a coder yourself. How did you end up at the Document Foundation? For years, so since the 90s, I've been writing about Linux-free software and GNU open source and all these topics as well, advocating it, tutorials, features, interviews, interviewed many people in the open source software world as well. Too many names to mention, but some great people. And then, yeah, there was a job opportunity at the Document Foundation, the small nonprofit entity behind LibreOffice, which is based here in Germany for a few reasons we can go into a bit later. But yeah, I had the opportunity to join, to do something that I'm genuinely interested in as well, to be involved in the, the free and open source software world. Use my combination of geek skills and journalism skills to work in marketing, but to also work in communications, the community as well, and as we're going to talk about today, making this project, LibreOffice project, sustainable in the long term. Love it. Always nice to have marketing people on here speaking as one myself at times. It's just everything you're saying is like, cool, that's a great context and story. Thank you for telling it so coherently and cogently. All of our other guests, thank you as well. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to shame anyone. So, Mike, for those of us who don't know, I've used LibreOffice before, but we can't assume all of our guests have. What is LibreOffice? So LibreOffice is a free and open source office productivity suite. So we can say the open source equivalent to Microsoft Office. It has a bunch of components, included word processor, spreadsheet, presentations, database, what people normally expect. A lot of people have heard of OpenOffice. Some people don't know what actually happened to OpenOffice. LibreOffice is a successor project to OpenOffice. So it was Star Office back in the day, a proprietary office suite. Then it became open source under Sun Microsystems as OpenOffice. Yep. Then there was a bit of a complicated history as well. And then Oracle ended up buying Sun. And then the community 
involved in OpenOffice said, uh, we want our own standalone foundation behind the software. We want to be a standalone community for the long-term sustainability of this software. Instead of being dominated by one company or perhaps being pushed around and having an uncertain future, yeah, let's have an, a fully independent future as an independent organization. So the Document Foundation was born to to steward and manage the LibreOffice project. So LibreOffice is more or less the successor to OpenOffice. OpenOffice still exists with the Apache Foundation, but its last major release was in 2014. It gets a few updates, but since then, virtually all development has been in the LibreOffice project. Awesome. That's really useful context. Thank you so much. So what's amazing to me about some of these projects, I mean, we had Ryan Sipes on from Thunderbird. I think Thunderbird is kind of in the same family of really useful open source apps which have been around forever, which tells me that you're doing something right. You're able to take a large project, which is really useful, easy to install, easy to get up and running, and also able to be sold to large enterprises to have the money to help you continue to develop on that. All of that has had to happen for you to have the history that you have and to still be around. In order to know a bit more about where you came from and how that was managed, can you tell me about the state of LibreOffice today and the Document Foundation? How do they work together? How many developers are there? How many times is it used? What are the numbers at? Yeah, it's a good question because a lot of people don't know or they assume that the Document Foundation is a bit like Mozilla and the Mozilla Corporation, yeah, where there's a large number of developers working on things. The Document Foundation is a very small non-profit entity, a Stiftung yeah. Foundation in Germany with only 12 people. There are only 12 of us here in the Document Foundation. So it's pretty small. And the Document Foundation, it doesn't have the name LibreOffice deliberately in the name because we are not the developers of LibreOffice. We cool. contribute to LibreOffice. I, we're all geeks to some extent. We can all, you know, hack on bits of code. But the Document Foundation is the home of LibreOffice, but it's not the developer. We are not a software house. So... When you look at our small team, these 12 people, you've got people like me for marketing. You've got a guy overseeing the documentation community, one guy overseeing the QA project, another guy overseeing the design community. So we are here to ensure that development and the community and the project can continue yeah, and to make it sustainable for the, for the best word. Yeah. So we don't sit around hacking on features all day. That's more the job of the community and the ecosystem that we'll come to as well. But our job is there as the core of the community to coordinate, make sure that LibreOffice is healthy, make sure the project and community can survive and go on even without us Yeah, in the event that we somehow disappear, which is very unlikely. I'm not predicting that, but you know that would be ideal. It, it shouldn't depend on us, even though we do contribute a, a large part to it. It's interesting that you mentioned Thunderbird as well, because about four years ago, the Thunderbird team were looking for a new home as well. They weren't sure if they kind of belonged in the whole Mozilla world anymore. And so they were saying, yeah, you know, we want to perhaps be a bit more independent. And we talked to them. We at the Document Foundation talked with the, the Thunderbird project community leaders and said, you know, could this work? Could, because lots of people say, LibreOffice and Office Suites needs an email client, you know, when yep. people compare with Microsoft Office and this Outlook integration, people say, yeah, when's LibreOffice going to have an email client? And we always say, well, we're pretty low on resources, <laughs> a small community working on the Office Suite, so we can't write an email client, but it works pretty well with 
Mozilla Thunderbird and other email clients as well. So there were these discussions whether Thunderbird should become part of the Document Foundation, another project. In the end, that didn't work out. We just thought this is not something we want to do right now. But who knows in the future, maybe other projects will come under the Document Foundation wings, so to speak. But right now, our core project is LibreOffice. So we survive almost entirely off donations, end user donations. When people download LibreOffice, often when they upgrade the software, download an update after six months, yeah, they've been using it, they're hopefully satisfied with it. Then they go to the download page and they see a nice donate button, support our community, and they donate. So that's where... The majority of our income at the Document Foundation comes from. So end users, not enterprises, we're not in that space. Awesome. Yeah, we don't offer technical support for LibreOffice. We don't compete. We don't want to. We can't compete with the ecosystem. Yeah, companies around, again, which we can talk about a bit later, but we have statutes in our foundation, yeah, rules of what we can do. And we're not out there to sell LibreOffice to enterprises. We don't provide long-term support releases as well. This is analogous to many things in the Linux and open source world. Yeah. You could take Debian, for instance. Yeah. Yep. Is, is a community project. And then you have Ubuntu and Canonical, which is using pretty much the same technologies, but then targeting them with other audiences as well. So we are nonprofit community organization in the middle. There's a whole ecosystem around it. So we had Therese Buttart from Drupal on recently and Acrea obviously has taken another route of having like a large company that has millions of dollars worth of revenue that works off open source. And they try to support the community and try not to influence it too much. Although Dries also is still the main maintainer of Drupal. So it's always a bit interesting what happens there. And then we have, you'd say the Python Foundation where you have another nonprofit, but it's a foundation that kind of supports, which I think is more like your model, but they're not from end user donations. They're mainly from say conferences. PyCon is their major money push or cash cow for the foundation. One of the questions I have, it's great that you have statutes and it's great that you're called LibreOffice. That tells me a lot as someone who knows a lot about the open source ecosystem that like Libra is very much, okay, we're derivative of the early days of open source. We understand what GNU was. We understand the GPL. Why haven't you decided to have a giant corporate empire and a fancy Lamborghini in the driveway? Not saying that other people have those, but like, why don't you shoot for enterprise people? What is it that that keeps you small and nimble and end user focused instead of something else? Well, maybe I do have a Lamborghini. Um, Good for you if you do. I, I'm just saying. Yeah. So why haven't we gone on to target the enterprise? When LibreOffice and the Document Foundation were founded, the goal initially was to provide something for the community. Yeah. So large enterprises using the software, that wasn't an issue even thought about at the time. And the expectation and the hope is, and I think to some extent this has been fulfilled, is that companies in the ecosystem will do that as well. Companies around offering long-term support, versions of LibreOffice, custom bug fixes, custom features, and so forth. So yeah, you mentioned that there are quite a few different models for these free software projects, which obviously makes sense for different audiences. Yeah, like you say, Python doesn't really have end users in the <laughs> sense that we estimate 200 million people using LibreOffice. That's amazing. Wow. Okay. Yep. yep. It's, a big, it's a big number. That's putting together various different factors and statistics. But with the world population, that's a reasonable number. Yeah, a very different model to what a lot of open source and free software projects have as well. I wasn't there at the beginning of the foundation when the statutes were written. So I... 
can't say exactly why certain decisions were made at the time, but I think the idea was to get away quite quickly from the whole complication around Oracle and Sun and, and these big companies and just make fully independent foundation that doesn't get involved in commercial activity and then leave the rest of that to the ecosystem. And now here we are in 2022 and there are companies out there doing that work. So there are companies, we have a LibreOffice in business page on our website listing these companies and what they provide, long-term support versions of LibreOffice. You know, if you're a big enterprise, you shouldn't really be downloading LibreOffice, the community supported version from our website. You can, everyone can do that. That's free and open source software. Yeah, but really for the long-term development of the software, it's better when large organizations get it from the ecosystem. Like a big company shouldn't really download Slackware and throw it on a bunch of computers. They would be more likely to get a Red Hat or Canonical or SUSE or whatever. So these companies in the LibreOffice ecosystem exist, providing long-term support versions, providing custom bug fixes as well. So those gaps have been filled and we don't feel the need to fill them ourselves. If we even could start to offer enterprise versions that would really change our purpose, we'd need probably a much bigger team. Like you said, it's quite nice being small and nimble. Yeah, it's not our goal to grow as quickly as possible. You know, introduces all sorts of other problems. And what was the old Fred Brooks quote, you know, about nine women can't make a baby in a month or something. So something like that. (laughs) But so, yeah, there are companies providing these things, LibreOffice versions for the enterprise. and, And we just stay back from that. We work with them. It's important that we work together. And that can be difficult sometimes as a small nonprofit, but we find ways. Okay. So I see you have a particular niche focus and that you're just really focused on that. You do have 12 people and I love that you mentioned you have a designer. That's awesome. We'd love to have them on the Sustained Open Source Design Podcast. Quick plug for the other Sustained Podcast. Let's ask him. Yeah, that that would be great. I'm sure he would be happy to talk about it. That'd be great. Given that and that you're not interested in growing in that way because you've decided not to, the ecosystem already has those companies out there. They're doing a reasonably good job and you're best able to support the community from where you are. That's a legitimate reason. Given that you don't fulfill those functions for the community, what does it allow you to do? What do you do with your nimbleness to go back to that word now? That's really useful. And that's something that no other company can do for LibreOffice. Yeah, what we can do, what we try to do, and what is also often a huge challenge is to grow the community. Yeah, so you mentioned the ecosystems are out there talking to big businesses, talking to the UK government, talking to the Taiwanese government. They're doing all that work, yeah, which isn't really our focus. Our focus is growing the LibreOffice community, including developers, volunteer developers, of which there are many, but also translators, designers, people writing documentation, bug reporters, bug testers, yeah, marketing, everything that a free software project needs, everything that any software project needs. That's our goal is to grow that community larger, wider, with more talent, more diverse, more geographically spread around as well. Again, How do you do that? What, what are you doing? Like what I'm excited about, like what are the nuts and bolts? Yeah, it's tough work a lot of the time because an office suite isn't trendy, isn't super exciting, the sexiest type of thing on the planet, yeah. So when you look at what people are talking about on Reddit and Hacker News and you look at GitHub and, you know, there are people who are working on games and media players and new web frameworks and all this cool, exciting stuff. And then if you come up to someone and say, well, would you like to work on an office suite? You know, people, oh, boy, those are just boring 
office tools. And then you have a code base like we have that's 7 million lines of C++ source code predominantly. And some of it goes back quite a while, goes back to the 90s as well. A pretty big hurdle. Yeah. So you got young budding programmers or old budding programmers. It doesn't matter. But if you try to tell someone, yeah, come and join in and you can help out with LibreOffice. Well, 7 million lines of C++ source code with some German comments here and there, although most of those are gone now. It's not the most welcoming thing. So these are the challenges that we have to overcome. Removing these hurdles to participation as well, removing the obstacles. So in the example of programming, one of the trickiest topics, we have a developer community architect. Yeah, we have a guy working for TDF cool. who's actually in Iran and he knows the source code. He knows how to build LibreOffice. He's done loads of different things. He's really good at communicating, explaining things. Yeah, so we're not developing LibreOffice so much, but we're trying to welcome new developers into the project, get them started, give them a foothold, show them code pointers where they can start. We have easy hacks. So small programming jobs, cleanups and fixing things in the code that we need, but nobody's really got round to, that don't take a huge amount of intricate knowledge of the giant code base, but people can dive into and, and get involved with. We work with the Google Summer of Code as well. I'm sure you've talked about this before on the podcast. That's a good way of bringing in especially young contributors as well. Every year we have GSOC contributors to the office. So that's one of the ways we do it. Then the other people in the foundation. So like I said, we have a guy heading the design community, coordinating the design community, a lady in France overseeing the localization project as well. So in all of our little areas, we tried to bring new people on board into the project and get them started. So in my case, marketing as well. If someone comes to me and says, you know, oh, I'd like to help out with LibreOffice marketing or more often LibreOffice marketing sucks, <laughs> then fair enough. We can say, then come and help us. I can get you started. What are your special skills and abilities? If you're good at graphic design, let's work together on some infographics for social media, campaigns for social media. So removing these obstacles to participation is a big thing as well. Then reaching out, going on this awesome podcast, turning users into contributors. So like I said at the start of this mini <laughs> rant, a mini section, it's an enormous job, but it's also incredibly good fun and the results are worth it. Even with a, an office suite project, which again doesn't sound super hip and trendy, one thing that you can really use to motivate people and motivate contributors is to talk about how many users we have. So you might be tempted to go on GitHub and help out with some cool media player that has Easter eggs built in and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. But if you add a, a feature or make an improvement to LibreOffice, that goes out to 200 million people. Yeah, 200 million people benefit from that. And if you are looking for a new job or changing career and you can put on your CV, I did this in LibreOffice. I updated the manual for XYZ, you know, if you're looking to be a technical writer or if you're interested in the whole field of UX and you can say, I implemented this change in LibreOffice to fix a menu, fix a dialogue. Yeah. Even if it's quite small, if that goes out to 200 million users, that looks really good on your CV. I mean, that's one in 40 people on the planet. So when you think about, it's just a documentation engine. Well, no notebook that I write on in my office today will be as useful as that. So I don't know. I think you're selling yourself a bit short by saying it, it's not that interesting. The users is definitely a really good target. Also, just the, the field of writing is the coolest thing in the world. 
for me. Maybe that's just my linguist things coming back into, into play, my background there. You mentioned CVs. I love that. You mentioned getting people involved in your some of your community processes. I love that. Tell me how you transfer power and lift people up. How do you make it so that people stay around and feel like they're part of the community? That's also a really good point because we often categorize different contributors. You have these drive-by contributors, yeah. They drive, <laughs> walk past, yep. throw a patch at you and you never see them again. Or sometimes it's an incredibly useful patch or change. Yeah, and you want these people to stay. Yeah, yep. Thank you. So we'll reach out and say, this is brilliant. As a small nonprofit, we can't offer much in the way of thanks. So no Lamborghinis, as you mentioned before, but um, or Ferraris or whatever. But we have Libre Office merchandise and hoodies and things to, to send out as, as a way of thanks. We can invite people to our conference as well. Or we can pay some of the fees for their travel fees and hotel accommodation and so forth. So that's a good way to, to make them feel valued as well. But yeah, you have contributors who come and go or or stay around for a few weeks, disappear. And then five years later, they're suddenly back doing another, making another change as well. I think the best thing you can do, at least in my experience, is to put your trust in people and to give them the power to make changes. I often see this inside our small marketing community in the LibreOffice project. People come and say, so who's responsible for what? What's the hierarchy? And I say, along with my colleague Italo, well, there isn't really anything. Doers decide. Doers decide. So if you want to do something, just do it. Well, in the sense of marketing, it's good that somebody oversees something before we just go and put it all over social media. Yeah, there has to be a little bit of, of discussion. But if somebody has a great idea for almost anything in the project, we just say, go ahead and do it. We'll give you our support if we can. But we trust you to try it where we can help you perhaps with some infrastructure. If you need a virtual machine or even if you want to do something locally in person, it's a bit difficult with the whole pandemic situation. But, you know, if you want to go out to a, a school or university and stuff, we'll give you the, the necessary resources to do it. So I think trusting people, which is always a bit of a balance when somebody's quite new, but putting your trust in their abilities and then saying, go ahead and do it. And then we'll take a look at the results. I think that works. That's one of the nice things about being a nonprofit as well. It's not constantly having to think about monetary value for everything we do. So there was a really good article that came out in the 1970s, I believe, called The Tyranny of Structurelessness, about how not having clear power structures empowers a certain subset of users and doesn't empower other people. It always takes a bit of ramp on to figure out how the power structures work. It's always difficult for new people to be able to have the trust or take the trust or be given the trust, however you want to call it, to be able to make effective decisions. You're saying doers decide. And I like that. It also kind of speaks to me of like move fast and figure things out. And so what I'm curious is how do you facilitate a handover of trust? How do you show that it's not just you making the decisions in the end and anyone can submit whatever they want? What do you do to enable people to actually a, learn the implicit power structures that you say aren't there, unless I, I misheard there. And maybe that's a really tough phrasing. I'm not trying to nail the wall here, but I'm really curious. And B, become part of those power structures and not just be contributors. Do you have like steering committees that they can join, which have the decisions in the end? I'm curious. Yep, this is true. So when I'm talking about the marketing project and community inside LibreOffice, it's so small. That's why I say it's pretty flat. And, and maybe there are always unwritten rules and things, but you make a good point there. Let's, if we talk about the development community, that is bigger and that needs to be more structured. And there is an engineering steering committee. So that yeah. is 10, 12, I think 13 developers 
who yep. have been around for ages. They've been around since the open office days, most of them. They know the code. They've built up this level of trust between each other as well. So there is definitely some hierarchy and structure there. So not any random person can come and just submit code patches that go into the, the code tree. But how do you build that up? Well, if you have a, a brand new developer, then there's obviously limited access what EG they can do in the source code base. Yeah, they can't go and make big changes, but they submit a small patch. If it looks good, then that's already in. They get their name known as well. And as they submit more and more, can get more rights to submit patches, do pull requests and more magic things that I don't really know exactly how it works with Git. And so as you work your way up and get a certain level of trust, you can apply to become part of this engineering steering committee. So that's the kind of the technical core group in the LibreOffice project, volunteers and community members and people from these ecosystem companies as well, where the big technical decisions are made. So there is, there is an, an element of structure there because development is, the development community is much bigger than say marketing or the design project, for instance, where things are a bit more wild west. <laughs> but yeah, the developers have this system as well that's worked pretty well over the years. There's obviously disagreements sometimes what features should be prioritized. That's always incredibly hard in a big project with so many users over so many years. There's that old XKCD comic about space bar heating in Emacs or something, I think. But sure, you can find a link. It's, this, it's the same thing for us. Somebody will come along and say, I want to make this change to move to quite drastically alter a feature in LibreOffice. And that may be a good thing to do. On the other hand, then we might upset 10, 20 million users as well. So 200 million users, I don't know. So that's a really hard balance to find. But we do talk about things, decisions are then made yeah, by this technical, by this steering committee as well. Then that gives us a kind of structured path going forwards. Are you a one project company? Uh, are there other things underneath the Document Foundation besides LibreOffice? Yes, there's also a much, much smaller project called the Document Liberation Project. Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. This is not so well known, but this is a, a kind of sister project, but it's independent of LibreOffice. And it's a bunch of software libraries that are used to pass proprietary document formats. So you, there's a library there for opening old Claris works files, for instance, if that says anything to you, an old Apple Office suite, I think, but also opening newer files like from Apple Pages and Keynote and all that stuff. So these are independent standalone libraries for opening files in all these different formats from usually proprietary Office suites. And these libraries can be used in other programs as well. So they're used in Scribus or Scribus, as some people call it. Yeah, they, I think some of them are used in Inkscape. Some of them are used in Caligra, and then yep. many of them are used in LibreOffice. So LibreOffice has its own code in rendering engine, processing engine for document formats inside. But a lot of the code handling all these random file formats from all over the world and all over the ages are separated out into these libraries so that other software projects can benefit as well. So that's the other kind of main project underneath the Document Foundation, it, although it's, it's much smaller. I think it's also worth mentioning that we do a lot of work with the open document maintainers as well. So the open document format is the native file format of LibreOffice, but it's not a, a LibreOffice. It's not the LibreOffice file format. It's an independent OASIS standard, yeah, that any other office suites can use as well. And it's important that grows and that is sustainable as well on its own, that there's a community maintaining it. And we have this community of ODF specification maintainers and they crowdfunded their own work to maintain this, this standard. So 
you think on the one hand, you have Microsoft with who knows how many people in their departments working on their OOXML pseudo standard, which has got its own problems. And then as usual, David versus Goliath, we are the, <laughs> the smaller guys, the smaller community, but yeah, the ODF maintainers crowdfunded their own work as well. They're, they're working on a new version of this, although they do get some financial support as well from, believe it or not, Microsoft. So amongst many other companies as well, but even Microsoft recognizes that ODF is a, a pretty important standard, even though they obviously love to push their own file formats. And Oasis does really cool work as well with standards in general. They're really interested in keeping the open source system alive. Yeah. And I think that's just as important as well. Yeah. Because it's nice having people using LibreOffice, 200 million people using LibreOffice, but if they're all saving in docx files, it's just still juggling these problematic transitional Microsoft file formats as well. So this is part of the work we do beyond just LibreOffice is trying to spread awareness of open doc of the open document format. Yeah. So yep. the UK government a few years ago standardized on open document format, for instance. Yeah. It was a really good move. I don't know how much Microsoft Office is still being used in, in the government, probably quite a bit, but that idea that public documents should be available in a proper, fully open public format, open document is brilliant. So we try to encourage this as well. So it's beyond just the software, it's open standards and all the topics I'm sure you guys have talked about many times before. Open asterisks. Yeah. I kind of wish I had Denise Cooper on this podcast. She was one of the early leaders of the OSPO at Sun for like six years. Um, it's the first open source program office there. So she probably has a lot to say on this topic. We've had her on the podcast before. Taking a left turn, however, I don't really use Microsoft Docs very much and I don't use LibreOffice often. I have used it in the past and thank you for helping with that work. What are you doing to make sure that you're sustainable in the face of Google Docs taking over the market for documents? That's what I use these days. Like how do you view cloud documentation writing versus say system level documentation writing? Well, there is a version of LibreOffice that runs in the cloud called LibreOffice Online. And it's a bit tricky because most of the work online was done by one company in the ecosystem. They did absolutely amazing work on it, but then all the discussions of which companies get recognition for which amount of work, what should we as the Document Foundation be offering versus what should this, the company that does most of the work on the code actually yeah. get? That company needs customers. Yeah. So we made a decision. We will not host LibreOffice online ourselves at the Document Foundation. Yeah. So we are not in direct competition with Google Docs. It exists. LibreOffice in the browser. Like you say, a lot of people expect and want to use now. They expect everything to be available in the cloud, wherever they are on, on mobile devices. This does exist, but again, we're not a service provider. So you can't just go to LibreOffice.org, create an account and start using the Office Suite in the cloud from our servers. Some people could argue we should provide that as, as part of our whole remit, yeah, but that's a whole big discussion as well. What's our job? So the cloud versions of LibreOffice do exist, provided by the ecosystem as well. And so we try to encourage people to use them. If you want to roll out a cloud LibreOffice solution in, in a large company, for instance, then go to the ecosystem. They have these things. And that's the tricky balance about ensuring that the ecosystem gets credit for their contributions, but making yep. the community sustainable as well. So like in the last release of LibreOffice, thinking again, mostly about the desktop version for a moment, but 60%, 70% of the code commits come from the ecosystem. So from paid developers working for these companies. So how do we ensure that those companies are also sustainable instead of just giving everybody free things from the Document Foundation and then yep. the companies can't pay the developers? 
And this balance is very tricky to find. And we've been talking about it over the last few years. We've developed a marketing plan for this as well. But to come up with this balance to say, it's part of our goal as the Document Foundation to make sure the world has access to a free office suite that's in our statutes. This is our job. We shouldn't try to hide that and just put a source code tarball on the internet somewhere and say, good yeah. guys, that is our job to, to make sure people have it in as many languages and wherever they are. But the ecosystem needs to survive as well and put bread on the table for all these developers. So anybody who wants to deploy LibreOffice in a big organization or in a large cloud infrastructure environment, go to the ecosystem. Interesting, the competition from the cloud, but I experienced as well. I think people still like to use desktop applications. I don't think the cloud is going to, in the near foreseeable future, now obviously the computing industry changes very quickly, but really personally, extremely anecdotal here, but I much prefer to use desktop applications. I still find cloud applications rather limited or have other problems when the internet goes down, which is pretty rare, but I'd like to have control of my own computing. So I think this is something we need to look at definitely and make LibreOffice Online more available, more compelling, do more work on it. But as long as we have 200 million desktop LibreOffice users at the moment, I don't think those are going away anytime soon. Can you tell me where the majority of your users are? I know the internet is fine in Munich and the internet is fine in Vermont, but it's not fine in the rest of the world. So I'm curious, where are those 200 million people? Well, it pretty much matches from what we know, the size of countries. So biggest number of downloads go to the US. It's very popular in Germany as well, but the United Kingdom, France, if you find a kind of heat map of LibreOffice downloads, it does match the countries with the most population. But again, because we're not laser focused on making money, we're interested in getting out into other countries as well, doing things for countries with more limited internet access or where tools are not available in these native languages. This is bridging digital divides, as they call it, yeah, and, and removing obstacles. So we have amazing translation communities who, who translate LibreOffice into so many languages. I don't want to call them obscure languages because everybody's language is just as valid, yeah? But lesser known languages, tribal languages as well. A few years ago, we had a community in South America somewhere translating the software into a local language so that the local people there can use these tools. Children can learn these tools. Microsoft and a lot of other companies would never be interested in, in translating the software into some of these smaller, lesser known languages. So I think there's something else we can do really, really well, having to think about, oh, will it make us some money? This is all about uh, making it accessible to as many people as possible. And, and LibreOffice is available now in, I think, 114 languages. So that's an enormous part of the world's population. I don't want to pull a number out of thin air here, but I suspect that's the vast majority of the world's population. Yeah, I'm looking right now. Some of these languages are actually low resource languages or endangered languages. Endangered languages. Aragonese is one of them. Not a lot of people speak that. Uh, Asturian, Basque. Love that. That is so cool. Thank you so much for doing that work. We're getting close to time now. So I have a couple of final questions. One of them is, what are you most excited about in the next few years? Personally, I'm, I'm excited about meeting people again at <laughs> conferences. I know that's not directly LibreOffice related, but yeah, yeah we, every year we have a, normally a LibreOffice conference that takes place in a different city. The ones I've been to are in Spain and Italy and Albania and the Czech Republic. 150, 200, 250 people turning up from, or invited as well. So all around the world, not just developers, but LibreOffice users and supporters and advocates. So I'm looking forward to having those in-person meetings again, seeing the community face-to-face. -face. It's 
even though in the free and open source software world, we're all pretty used to sitting in front of computers for most of the day. I think the value of face-to-face meetups is so important. So hopefully at the end of this year, we will organize a conference, again, an in-person conference. We don't know where, possibly in Germany. And then you are invited, of course, Richard. So (laughs) I would love to come back. Uh, It'd be so much fun. I miss Germany immensely. Love that. Where can people find out about this conference and where can they follow you on the web? Yeah, to follow almost everything that's happening in the LibreOffice community, follow our blog, blog blog.documentfoundation.org. That's where we post all sorts of updates, announcements, requests for help, tenders when we tender out features. So people can follow us there. We have our usual Twitter, Mastodon, so something a bit more free software friendly. We're hosted on Fosterdon there for as a micro social networking site as well. Facebook, yeah, we're on Facebook. I know it's not everybody's favorite tool. But it's a good way to reach out to users, yeah? Lots of end users use Facebook, but everyone can keep an eye on our blog and and social media to see what we're doing, what we're up to. But the main thing is, if anybody's got any ideas, let us know. Get in touch with us. Anyone can drop me an email, mike.saunders at documentfoundation.org as well. Always love to hear what people are doing with LibreOffice, what they think, what could be improved. We have limited resources. I can't promise magical fixes (laughs) overnight to everything, but... We do our best and I know it's probably expected for anybody to say, oh, our community is great. But really, I I think in the LibreOffice project, perhaps because we're working on something that's not so controversial like some projects can be, an office suite, yeah. (laughs) Going back to what I mentioned before, not the most exciting thing in the world, but it also means that, yeah, it's not also a very controversial thing. So the the community gets on pretty well. There are often passion discussions about what we should be doing and where we should be going. But I love working together to make something cool. Awesome. I also do. I think the work you're doing is great. I don't think you need to say that it's not interesting work. In the time scale of the world, writing is a relatively new thing. And being able to enable people to write and share information is awesome. I saw an article yesterday that effectively showed that communities are no longer learning by geographical proximity alone anymore. They've now shown by looking at Wikipedia's across the world that people are actually sharing information effectively outside of geography using the internet and tools like LibreOffice. So don't put yourself down. It is a really cool project that is really important for tons of people. I said one in 40, maybe more like one in 35, given the population of the world at the moment. Thank you so much for coming on. This is awesome. Don't leave yet. We have one final bit of the show, which is always fun. Mm. Spotlight is where we talk about other people, other projects, other things that just need the light shed on them or that we think is really great. So my spotlight today, you mentioned Brazil, I believe, and indigenous language usage of LibreOffice. That is the coolest thing ever. And it reminded me of Narira Lemos. Narira is a really awesome researcher. She is a Mozilla fellow. She works at the core project or has worked there. And she's currently working on a grant with the Digital Infrastructure Fund, which is a community I help maintain, looking at how indigenous communities work on open source. I'm going to link to her GitHub in the show notes, but I love people who are doing awesome research on other people using open source in ways that we just didn't expect here, you know, where we are in the Western world. So super excited about Narira's work. Thank you, Narira. Mike, what is your spotlight today? My spotlight is, well, it should be what you just said, because we should talk together about (laughs) this as well as we get LibreOffice translated into more and more languages. Yeah, but my spotlight is, um, I did briefly mention Slackware earlier in this podcast as well. So the the Slackware Linux distribution and 
I just want to give it a quick mention because when I started to use Linux back in the 90s and I started off with Red Hat Linux from a magazine cover CD, it was pretty cool, you know, Red Hat Linux, it's all fine and everything, but it all felt kind of corporate and polished. And then I got Slackware and it's like, now I have to learn this system. Now I have to learn what Linux is really about. I have to create my own X server configuration file and probably things I wouldn't want to do today, in all honesty. But Slackware, I think it's been years since I've really used it, but I think it's a very sort of pure Linux distribution. I've probably set off a huge argument now by saying that. That's incredibly subjective, so apologies. But it's got its own beautiful simplicity to it. It's not, doesn't have all sorts of extra patches rolled in from all sorts of other distribution-specific patches. It's just a nice, simple version of Linux, and that really turned me into a, a hardcore Linux user back then. So thanks, Slackware. Thanks to Pat Volkerding, I think his name is, the awesome guy who still maintains it. And so, yeah, long may it continue. Awesome. You're not the only person to get into open source through zines. I know Deb Nicholson, previously the interim executive director of the OSI, also got into zines. I think Ruth might have as well, Ruth Weller. So super cool to hear about Slackware. Thank you for giving it a plug. We have this link and others in the show notes. If anyone is interested, please do check out the show notes. They will be on the website for this, which is, I think, podcast.sustainoss.org. As always, if you have any thoughts, comments, please reach out on Twitter. If you want to reach out to both me and Mike, you could do that. You can reach out to Mike directly about Document Foundation, about LibreOffice, and about all things really awesome in that space. If you have any thoughts on how we can make this more sustainable, I would love to hear them. Rich Lit on Twitter. And again, Mike, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing. Please continue doing it. I do not want to live in a world where we do not have open document formats and ways to edit them effectively. So thank you very much. Take care. 